morning. How's everyone doing? Son? Yes, okay. You're here last week, you know, that's a big deal. Uh, I hope you're all doing well. My name is Tyler. I am one of three pastors on staff here. Um, just a small side note, if you didn't know, you've been coming for just the past few weeks. It's myself, um, Pastor Mike, who leads in worship. Um, and then Pastor Bland, who's actually been off for the month of January and should be coming back in the next week or so. And he's actually normally one that's, that's up here doing this. So we're excited to have him back. Um, also want to say just thank you, uh, Jane and Stephen, for just that powerful reminder that, that God still heals, God still restores, God still does these amazing things. Um, they kind of said it a little bit when they were talking, but I was just thinking, like, in light of the Gospel of John, what we've been working through, like, we read about God doing these miracles and these healings and these crazy, wonderful things, and I think we kind of fast forward to our cultural moment, and at least in my heart, this is me being honest with you, I feel the need to water down God. I look at the scriptures and say, I don't necessarily, like, I believe God can do these things, but, like, I don't know that I see it at the frequency or in the same way or this or that. Um, and so that story is just a good reminder that we don't have to do that. We don't have to water down the God we see in the Bible because it's the same God. He still heals. He still loves. He still restores. Um, in that same vein, uh, I, I think all of you feel encouraged by that story. One thing we're actually trying to grow in as a church is um, just sharing what God is doing amongst our congregation, sharing testimonies, sharing answered prayers, um, and things like that. So there should be QR code on the screen. Um, what we actually have for you is, like, we're just kind of calling it a testimony form. Um, and so we, like, kind of church leadership, this goes to the prayer team and um, the elders. Uh, we just want to hear, like, how is the Lord answering your prayers? Like, maybe the Lord's given you a word. Maybe um, he's, he's just done something crazy in your life and you want to share it. Um, would encourage you to fill that out. Just kind of, we'll advertise it over the next few weeks in various places. Um, just fill it out. We would love to celebrate with you, and, and when it's appropriate, find the proper avenues to, to share that uh, and encourage the people around you um, that, that God is working in our congregation and in our lives. Uh, so we'd really encourage you to do that. I want to draw your attention to um, three things. Uh, one, our youth group is back. Most of our youth group is back. Welcome back. YC was fun. One word to sum it up. Someone give me one. On the spot. Yeah, let's go. I'm not moving on until someone gives me one. <laughs> Andre, what's the word to sum it up? <laughs> wonderful, yes. Ah, oh, good, wonderful. It's wonderful. If you didn't know that there's, a, there's an annual conference that our youth group goes to, um, it's been a great time, and I've heard great things so far. Uh, the second thing I want to draw your attention to um, the beginning of, of the, the, the series we started in John, we, we gave these away, um, and we just ordered a new batch because I know a number of you are kind of newer, have been coming since we started giving them away. And so uh, if you want to have a really nice scripture journal where just you have the journal on one side and the scripture on the other, um, these are available to you at the welcome table. If you are newer, as in maybe you've been coming just at the start of this year or beyond, this is just our gift to you. Um, if you're kind of a regular tender, we would just ask for a $5 donation for that. You can just give honor system, give on the app or in the, the, worship bas the offering basket as it passes by. You have full permission, if you want this, for this sermon to leave right now and go to the welcome table and get that. Uh, last thing I want to draw your attention to. Um, very simple. This dark, cold, depressing season that is February, the sun sets at 5.01 p.m. tonight, FYI. That's, 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 that's good news. Anyways, John 7, 1 through 36. Um, so every year at church, or every year, um, Brookline does something called Brookline Day. Uh, and COA, if you didn't know, we, have, um, a, we went out a booth, a, a tent, 
and, and go to this event, um, and it's, it's just really fun. Anyone been to the booth, the co-booth at Brooklyn Day or served at the co-booth at Brooklyn Day? Yeah, so if you didn't know, Brooklyn Day, once a year, the town closes off Harvard Street, um, and uh, a lot of organizations and businesses rent out space, booths, tents, to kind of, you know, advertise their business, give away some, some goodies. Uh, there's food, there's stuff for kids, there's live music. It's, a, it's just like a really fun time. Um, in the past two years, we have actually given away a ton of free seltzer if people fill out a survey. Some of you in the room know exactly what I'm talking about because you did it. Um, so two years ago, the first year we did this survey for a seltzer kind of thing, um, we got over 500 responses. It was great. It was really awesome. Uh, and the prompt was, if God exists and you could ask one question, what would it be? Two of my favorite answers, do I have a chance with Harry Styles? And just, you know, the deepest soul-searching of questions, is it pronounced gif or jif? <laughs> but, but there actually were some really good ones, right? Some that like made me, oh man, that's better than the question I would, would have had. And um, there were some really hard ones too. Right, where are you and why aren't you stepping into my life? Why are so many people who profess your name, why do they discriminate against your image bearers? Can I see my dad again? This past year, to get a little more defined and kind of usable data and answers, we um, asked a different question. We asked, what do you think of Jesus? And we had to drop down kind of a few different selections that they could choose. And um, the results are really interesting. It should be up on the screen, actually. 29% said they don't know much about him. 26% said he was a good teacher and nothing more. 8% a myth, not a real person. 2% a delusional person. Um, now, some of you who are really good and quick at math, you're like, what? Uh, not to distort your, your view of the survey, um, but 35% did say the son of God in human form. But that's because so many of you in this room wanted a free seltzer. So that is not representative of the Brookline community at all. There's not 35% that would, would agree with that statement. Um, our, our data was skewed greatly. Next time, just ask for a seltzer. It's fine. But based on other st statistics that are well-researched and readily available to us, 6% of Brookline and probably less than 5% of Boston would agree with that statement in the way that we mean it. And so it's very clear from the data from our own neighborhood, our own city, that people in our own community have a wide variety of opinions and views of Jesus. In other words, the confusion, the varying opinions we see in our passage still exist today, almost in a one-to-one -one kind of way. In some ways, it's absolutely just, just no different. Right? The people that filled out the survey, just like the people in the passage, they look at the works, the words, the, the life of Jesus, or those they've been kind of exposed to at least, and they come to a conclusion. All right, they have an answer to the question, what do you think of Jesus? But here's, here's the blunt truth with that kind of thinking. It doesn't actually matter who Jesus is to you. It really doesn't. In the sense that what you do or don't think about Jesus he still is who he is. Right, what you think of Jesus doesn't alter who he truly is. What matters is who is Jesus objectively? Who is Jesus really? And the Gospels, not just from a Christian perspective, but from just like a historical perspective, provide the best answer to that question in terms of reliability. So the question then for us changes. 
is no longer what do you think of Jesus. The question posed to both the Christian and the non-Christian alike is how does your view of Jesus line up with the scriptures? Where would Jesus, just like he does with the different kind of groupings of people in our passage, uh, where would he correct you? Your understanding and opinion of who he is. Are you, like we just read in verse 24, judging Jesus rightly? Maybe you've been a Christian for some time and you wouldn't claim to like, oh, I fully know and perfectly understand this Jesus, but you genuinely try to be one-to-one with what we see in the Bible and what you think of Jesus. But maybe his question to you is this instead, where in your life are those views not reflected? Where are you not living those views out? Where in your life are you not applying these things? Because if you truly believe in the Jesus of the Bible, your life will look a certain way. It'll have certain flavors and certain principles that you live by. So if you've been with us, the book of John answers this question. It answers this question beautifully. Who is Jesus? What we've been doing kind of um, subconsciously and what we want to continue doing maybe a little more consciously is, is taking the way John shows us who Jesus is and comparing against what we think of Jesus. John almost challenges us to do this, right? Chapter 20, again, we read this verse like the past six weeks, every single week. He gives us his purpose statement. He says, these are written, this book, this gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so in light of that, in light of our passage, instead of a main point, we actually have a main question, a main question that I want you to consider. And it's just this. Does your view of Jesus line up with the Bible? Does your view of Jesus line up with the Bible? What you think about his life and his teachings and where he might be correcting you and calling you to think differently, or where is he calling you to respond to him? Another thing we see in this passage is not just the questions that are posed and his responses, but we see people have, or sorry, Jesus' responses, but we see that people then have a very particular response as well. Right, not just like verbal responses, like, I disagree, but we see things like disbelief, skepticism, anger, presumptions. And so if you're like a very structured person, I actually usually like to come with like, here, we're going to talk about this, this, and this. But this time, we're just going to work through the passage. So I hope you can hang with me. Um, it's, it's organized Pretty clearly, if you look closely, it's just kind of the different interactions Jesus has with these different, different groupings of people. So we'll start with verses 1 through 9. And remember, as we work through these, compare who you think Jesus is to his own words. This chapter, it's probably about five or six months after the feeding of the 5,000 um, and after the I am the bread of life discourse, if you were here for that last week. Um, in the first section, we see Jesus interacting with his brothers, with his family. Um, and as a total side note, um, if you, this sounds totally normal to some of you, but if you have any kind of Catholic background, this sounds really weird. And I know a lot of people in Boston have that background. A lot of um, Catholicism teaches that, that Jesus actually didn't have any biological siblings, didn't even have um, any biological brothers or sisters, um, and that Mary actually remained a virgin for her entire life. But we do come face to face with the fact that the scriptures just don't support that idea. It just quite simply says Jesus has siblings. And his brothers... They say this to him in verse three. Don't hear this with sincerity, but they are kind of taunting him here. There's tones of sarcasm. They say, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing because no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So they quite simply misunderstand Jesus to be concerned with himself and his reputation. But he's actually concerned with the Father, right, with God. He says, my time has not yet come. In other words, I'm waiting on and obeying my Father. I'm waiting on and obeying God. He throws out such an interesting statement in verse 7 in his response. Look at what he says. He says, the world cannot hate you. It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Such a huge statement in such a uh, one little sentence. In other words, Jesus is telling his brothers, you misunderstand. You think I want to show the world myself for my gain, but I really want to show the world its true self. And what does this mean? It means that Jesus exposes sin and evil. Yes, there is a sense in which Jesus, he's doing this at a particular point in time in this passage in a particular way with a particular people, but he still does it to this day. That action doesn't cease. Right? He does this to this day through the Spirit. Right, and how? Well, because when the world comes face to face with someone as godly and as perfect and as beautiful as Jesus, there's immediately a contrast. Right, that's why he's exposing the world. Yes, Jesus exposes the Pharisees and other groups of people verbally by like what he says, but it's also who he is and how their lives contrast with his life. Right? It's, it's the contrast that's painted between the, the, the moral, to pure, moral purity and the moral perfection and the, the absolute beauty that we see in the life and the words of Jesus, and they're pinned against the religious leaders, the quote-unquote most godly people of that day, and they pale in comparison. Some of us, we could have all the evidence in the world that Jesus is who he says he is, but we just don't want to feel exposed in front of God. I've literally sat across the table with people who haven't taken that step of faith because of that reason. But Jesus, we have to understand, he does this for our own good. Right, why? Because when you see, when you truly see the depths of your evil, only then can you see God as beautiful and forgiving and merciful. If you don't think of yourself as evil, then God's just a little add-on to you. And Jesus, he doesn't just mean this, this for those who aren't Christian. All right, if you're a Christian, don't think he won't do this to you. In fact, he might even do this more to you. All right, your sin's in secret. The deep parts of your soul that still cling to the world in some way, whether it's perpetual gossiping or greed or selfishness with your money or porn addictions, do you know what the end of that road is if you're in Christ? Yes, ultimately forgiveness and grace, but Jesus will expose it, and that is forgiveness and grace. Jesus will expose it for your good. It's part of God's promise to you. It's what we talked about last week, some that, that, that God, he's in control, and in Christ you are eternally secure, and this, that, that is, this is part of that process. Right, the darkness of sin being exposed in us is painful, but God does it out of a place of compassion and love and desiring the best for you. And let me just say, for those of us in the room, right, I talk about this, this exposing this, this sin, this secret sin in your life, something immediately came to mind. Something. And it'll be far less painful for you and those around you, if you confess that and work against that and fight against that within the safety of Christian community, other than waiting 
and one day in a manner which is not ideal for you or the people around you. Jesus will expose this. Jesus tells his brothers, you misunderstand, I have come to show the world its true self. Next, look at verses 10 through 24 with me. Really honing in on verse 16. Um, The verses before that, he ends up going to the Feast of Booths, which was, if you didn't know, one of three kind of annual festivals that that, that Jewish folk were required to go to and celebrate. Um, We're not going to dive too deeply into it, but if you're interested in that, Leviticus 23, you'll find all the stuff about the feasts. Um, and actually, so I know if, if you like are around Brookline in the fall, um, you'll see like tents and booths in people's yards. And, and I'm sure most of you know, we're in a really heavy Jewish population. Um, Brookline is heavily Jewish. And so they're doing the same thing. Right? They're doing the same thing we see in our passage. And what it is, is really a celebration or remembering of the time when God brought God's people, the Israelites, out of slavery from Egypt, and they dwelled in tents in the wilderness. It's a celebration of that. And just to say there's really deep, and significant connections between Jesus and this festival, right? It wasn't just the celebration of Israel being delivered and dwelling in tents. It was also a celebration of God dwelling with them in those tents. Now, Jesus is on the scene painting a similar picture. Have you noticed that's been a theme for the past few weeks? There's some picture that's being painted in the Old Testament, and Jesus now comes in the New Testament and paints a similar picture. And in this new picture, he's playing the same role that God played in the Old Testament picture. As God dwelled with man through the tent, now man dwells with God through the sun. But he goes to the celebration. The passage notes that the people are talking about him before he gets there. Right, will he show up? Where's he at? This dude's crazy. Nah, he's a good man. He's leading people astray. But he comes on the scene and starts teaching, and, and he chooses to do it in the middle of the festival, which means that it's kind of at its height. There are probably the most people there. And interestingly, John doesn't tell us what he teaches. Right, but either way, what he teaches, how he teaches it, causes them to marvel. Verse 15, look at this with me. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And then Jesus, in a moment where he could potentially get the credit and the praise for his intelligence, his knowledge of the scripture, his authoritative teaching, and I'm sure just his overall really impressive uh, uh, presence as a teacher, what does he do? He deflects in a way that's good. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If I was speaking on my own authority, I'd be seeking my own glory and my own praise, but I seek the praise of the one who sent me. He throws out this interesting idea. And if you really knew God, and you really wanted to do his will, you would know that too. In other words, Jesus tells the Jews, you think my teaching comes from me and me alone, but my teaching comes from God. If you really genuinely sought God, you would know this. Now zoom out, 25,000 feet. What do the Jews of that day believe about God? What do they believe about his character? Right, they believe there is one true God who is completely and totally perfect, Wise, holy, unique, unlike anything and anyone ever. So for Jesus to claim his teachings come from God the Jewish, to the Jewish people in front of him, that's to claim that his teaching is more than just good advice. It's more than just simple wisdom. It's a claim that his teaching is completely and totally perfect, wise, powerful, holy, and unique. And more than this, because on one hand, like that's no different than a prophet we see in the Old Testament, right? 
right, that they had a revelation from God. God spoke to them. God gave them a prophetic word. But Jesus isn't presented as just a prophet in the book of John. Jesus isn't presented as just a prophet in the New Testament. Right, where the prophets of the Old Testament say, thus saith the Lord, Jesus now says, truly, truly, I say to you. My teachings aren't just from God on his authority, but they're from God on my authority. For the Christian, this means that the teachings of Jesus are absolutely binding on your life. They are not optional. As much as we want to do hermeneutical, interpretive backflips to get them to the conclusion that we want, Jesus says what he says and he means what he means. It's from God. You profess to be in Christ. These teachings are binding on your life. To be clear, Jesus' words, they're not just teachings to be followed in the sense of do this and don't do this, right? But Jesus' teachings, what he did and who he was, are actually a way of living, a way of life. What Jesus teaches is a way of life, a way of communing with God that gives you the most joy possible. He doesn't invite you into do's and don'ts. He invites you into the most joy you can possibly experience. What do I mean by this even more? Far too often, we strip down the lives and teachings of Jesus to be rules. Or at best, a religion that's to be viewed and uh, participated in once a week. Maybe twice a week, if you're extra good and you go to a small group. But this is, what not Jesus, this is not what Jesus intends. John Mark Comer, he has this, this really stinger of a quote. He says this, he says, the problem is in the West, we have created a cultural milieu where you can be a Christian, but not an apprentice of Jesus. You can be a Christian, but not an apprentice of Jesus. He goes on and he makes this heartbreaking distinction. We're talking about statistics earlier. He throws, he, he throws ones out there. For the best data that we can gather, 63% of Americans identify as Christian. But only 4% are apprentices to Jesus. What does that mean? Only 4% are actively learning and following and living and attempting to live like and with Jesus. And living in the ways of Jesus. Translation, it's very possible that only 4% of America is actually saved then. Despite 63% claiming to be Christian. For the Christian, following Jesus is more than just following his rules. It's following his way of life. For the non-Christian, two things to consider. Two things I want you to consider. Here, Jesus says this to, to the people in this passage, and he says this to you in this room. This is the honest truth of Christianity. This is the honest truth about what we believe. And hang with me here for a second. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, but you're actively exploring Christianity, or you're actively searching for deeper meaning or connection with God or a higher being, and you come to the conclusion that Jesus is not a part of that, then what Jesus says is you have actually missed God. You haven't actually found God. Hebrews, Hebrews calls Jesus the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus reveals God to us because he is God. To take Jesus out of the equation, Jesus says, is to take God out of the equation. What he's doing is not throwing his name into consideration among a bunch of different religions for you to just ponder and choose. 
is not a buffet. Jesus, he presents a way of life, a religion, a worldview that has himself at the center, not because he's egotistical, but because he's the bread of life, because he's the living water, because he's the only one that's capable of satisfying your deepest need. And can I just say, if you're here and and, and you aren't sure about this Christianity, this, this Jesus, he's so unique and he's so powerful that you can't avoid considering him how he lives his life, how he speaks and and what he teaches, right? If you consider other teachings, other philosophies, other wisdoms, like you'll you'll find some wisdom. You'll find some compassion. But I am personally convinced you won't find them both in perfect form melded together in one man. In Jesus, we have the perfect wedding of of divine wisdom, divine teaching, and divine compassion. And what does this divine teacher do? He starts a school and raises up thousands of disciples and gains a bunch of wealth and retires in a nice seaside home by the Galilean Sea. Nice 401k. No, what does this divine teacher do? He dies willingly. To us, that doesn't make sense. Not what I would do if I were him. (laughs) Remember what he tells us. Remember what he tells us at the end of our reading. Don't judge by mere appearances. I really encourage you, thoroughly examine the teachings of Jesus. I really encourage you to do so. If you're not a Christian, do so with a Christian. Or at the very least, a really good study Bible. Many in this room would be happy to do that with you. And this, like, this is like a genuine invitation right now. Like if you are that person, you don't know anyone, I am more than happy to do that with you. Come find me after the service. Send me an email. I'm just constantly blown away by this. Right, for me, examining his teachings over and over throughout the years, they only continue to more and more prove this statement to be true, that he is the divine teacher with divine teaching. When I say divine teaching, just to be super clear, I don't mean just like really, really good teaching like he thought about it for a long time. I mean teaching from God. It's so crazy and so inexplicable and so wise and perfect that we couldn't have imagined of a better response. The longer you look at them, the deeper they get, the more profound they become. The way he answers questions, the way he teaches in parables, his knowledge and insight into both God and the human heart, that's saying something. He goes on. He concludes this idea, this teaching from God. He sort of shifts the the conversation to them and, and says in verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Jump to verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the father's. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Remember a few chapters ago, I think it was the beginning of chapter five, Jesus on the Sabbath, he goes and heals a man who couldn't walk. And Jesus throws out what I think you could kind of safely call a summary statement of this passage that we're working through today. He says this, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus tells the crowd, you think I broke the Sabbath once. 
yet you do it. You do the same and call it right. You think I broke the Sabbath once, yet you do the same and call it right. Don't be a hypocrite and judge thoughtfully. In other words, if you did not judge based on mere appearances, if they judged rightly and searched the scriptures rightly, they would come to a different conclusion. They would see that Jesus is, in fact, not a Sabbath breaker as he was accused of being. D.A. Carson, who side note, I've quoted him a couple times, is because he has, in my opinion, by far the best commentary on the book of John. And so if you're really interested on taking like a deeper dive, totally encourage you to check that out. But he says this about it. He says, they, the crowd, have misconstrued his character by a fundamentally flawed set of deductions from Old Testament law. They have misconstrued his character by mistaken assumptions from the Bible, from the Old Testament, an approach that turns out to be superficial, far too committed to mere appearances if their approach was to do God's will, if their approach to God's will were one of faith, they would soon discern that Jesus is not a Sabbath breaker, but the one who fulfills both Sabbath and circumcision. In other words, they didn't understand Jesus. And in some ways, it seems like they didn't want to. And so for us, where are you not judging Jesus rightly? And maybe to be more direct, where are you choosing not to hear Jesus? What this quote is saying and what Jesus is saying is that judge, you should judge based on truth, not appearance. Because if we judge based on appearance, that's always going to lead you to choosing what looks good. That's what it means to judge based on appearance. Where are you Christian and non-Christian alike? Where are you trying to figure out what you believe? Right, if it's for the, for the Christian, you know the scriptures, you know what they say, and in your heart of hearts, maybe you know what they are telling you to believe. But you're avoiding because you don't want to land there. Take whatever hot button, political, cultural, national, international issue. Maybe it's something more theological. Maybe it's baptism or tithing or sharing your faith in a way that is joyful and consistent and bold. When Jesus prompts you to do these things, do you do it or do you go searching for 10,000 reasons not to? In some sense, that's what the Pharisees are doing. Out of pride and arrogance. Jesus, he's given them an abundance of evidence and signs that, that with clarity point to the fact that he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. They and we have enough to judge rightly he prompts them over and over believe in me he prompts you over and over believe in me trust in my word and yet they and we search deeply for reasons not to and it has nothing to do with logical evidence and everything to do with their hearts and our hearts They're scared. They think, they think about the things they think they would lose. They don't realize the things they would gain. So where are you judging Jesus wrong? Where are you not hearing and following Jesus properly? Where would Jesus correct you? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. As we start to close, <clears throat> Jesus, he, he ends the passage by, by telling the crowds, he, he corrects their understanding again. Right, they say, we know where you come from, so you're not the Messiah. 
And he says, you think you know where I come from, but I come from God, and you don't know God, so therefore you don't know where I come from. He's reinforcing this idea that they are not judging rightly, but judging on appearances, where it appears he is from. But the thing I want to end with, and I want to challenge us with, is this. You'll notice John goes to great lengths, yes, to record how Jesus responds to these things, but he also goes to great lengths to record how the people respond. Right, the responses are anything but apathetic. His brothers didn't believe. Jews spewed demonic accusations against him. Some made definitive claims that he wasn't the Messiah. We do see some, some, some what seems to be professions of faith as well. We also see anger and assumptions and an attempted arrest. In some sense, the words that Jesus speaks in Scripture demand a response from us. Christian and non-Christian alike. We can't get away with being indifferent towards Christ. The things he says, the way he lives his life, and the things that he teaches will not allow us to do that. He's either the God of the universe and the Lord of your life, or he's a crazy nobody. There is no in-between. So the question is quite simply, what will your response be? Christian, will you genuinely ask the question, where is my view of Jesus not lining up with the Bible? And don't just think in terms of like theology, but think in terms of practice. I mean, are you living like Jesus lived? Where are you not living like Jesus lived? Here's my challenge to you. Don't ask yourself alone. Ask someone close to you. Your spouse. Your community group. Where am I not living like Jesus? Where does my life not line up with the life of Jesus we see in the Bible? Non-Christian, my encouragement to you is the same, to bring it up again. Consider the teachings and the claims of Jesus. I believe we will be eternally judged based on what we believe about Jesus' teachings. Is he who he says he is? And again, encourage you, do this alongside someone in this room. In fact, we sort of do this every week at community groups. Also another option for you. We'd love for you to check one of those out. But Jesus, because of his words, his life, his teachings, they demand a response from you. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. And the clarity with which, through it, you reveal yourself through your son. God, help us to trust that revelation, to trust your word, to trust the scriptures, to trust the Jesus we see, the true Jesus in the scriptures. God, I pray for two things. Those that know you, Jesus, I pray that we would bring, you would bring us closer to you by correcting our areas of misunderstanding by correcting the areas we're not living like you. And God, for the non-Christian that's in this room, I pray, Lord, that they would take their next step of faith. Whether that's talking to someone in this room, whether that's opening their Bible or a Bible for the first time, going to a community group, God, or even professing faith in you, Jesus. God, we pray for that to happen.